Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 311, recorded July 27th, 2011. The Anatomy of a Security Mistake. Security Now is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account for six months, visit Squarespace.com and use the offer code SECURITYNOW7. And by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies on your PC, Mac, iPad, iPhone, or TV instantly. All streamed directly to you, saving you time, money, and hassle. For your free 30-day trial, visit Netflix.com slash twit. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security and your privacy online. Leo Laporte here in a little bit of an unusual situation. This is our what we call our living room set in the new Twit Brick House studio. Steve Gibson is here. Uh, Steve, first of all, thank you for coming all the way up to do a Twit on Sunday. It was really fun having you. It was a lot of fun, Leo, to, to be there to see the first podcast, well, to be part of the first podcast from the new studio. Yeah, it was a great show, and it was all my old friends, and so that was kind of special. And normally, we'll be doing this show, um, in fact, if somebody tunes in next week and didn't know that we were in a new studio, they'd probably just think nothing had changed. Uh, but we will be in back in my office next week, and the office is built to simulate the old Twig Cottage. Oh, neat. I think that's a great uh, for continuity. and yeah. yeah. It'll be fun, but I kind of like I kind of like this too. I mean, having sitting here comfortably with you and 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 having you on the monitor and all that that works pretty well too. So today From we're going to talk about chat. the anatomy of a security mistake. What is that? I am so excited about this episode because um, it began with a um, someone tweeted me something that they saw, and I a, a the details of a of new flaw that had just been discovered after 13 years in orp, in open source code. It's in the open wall, in SUSE, in wow. some flavors of PHP. Um, a, a, a problem with the implementation of ha- password hashing. And when I looked at what the problem was, the reason I got excited was it's a perfect example of the, the thing we've been talking about ever since the beginning of the podcast of why security is so difficult, how, how programmers could look at this code as, as much as they want to, and it would look perfect, but there's a subtle bug in what the code does. And the reason this captured my imagination for the podcast is that we, during the – I mean, this is going to be a propellerhead podcast. This is going to be a, you know, sit down and focus. But all of our listeners, if they follow with me, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to explain some things about binary representation in computers, how, binary, how, how signed and unsigned integers 
are represented. Um, we need to have a little bit of that background. Then I can explain what this one line of code does wow. and why it's wrong and the and the obvious security implications. So it's a it's just a it's such a great example in I mean in the real world, not just generalities as as we're normally sort of forced to use, but an exact explicit example of why security is so difficult. And so anatomy of a security mistake. I, this is going to be a great podcast. But, you know, I'm the one that always says, oh, use open source software because so many eyes are looking at it. It's so much more reliable, so much more secure. And this is, this this has escaped people for years. Well, and the way it finally got found was somebody was was messing around with password cracking. And uh, I think it was John the Ripper was the program being used. <laughs> and his results didn't match what he expected huh. and so so it literally it forced him to drill down into the code looking for was it his mistake or was it a mistake somewhere else and it turns out it was a mistake in a 13 year old it's like some since, since 1998 um original blowfish hashing code where you know and i've often said how it's necessary to have a debugger sometimes just hit you in the face right. with the problem. Right. And because otherwise you could just stare at it all day and it just looks fine. A little insight into the world of programming and how easy it is to make mistakes and how hard it is to find them. Uh, coming up in a bit. Before we before we get started, because I know you also, I'm looking here, we have, secu- we have a bunch of security updates from mm-hmm. uh, Apple. A really weird bug uh, in the battery code. Not bug, yep. mistake in the battery code. We'll talk about that uh, and a bunch of other stuff. But first, I want to talk about Squarespace.com, the secret behind exceptional websites. You know, uh, one of the problems with running blogger software on your own server is keeping it up to date. And we have that problem here. In fact, uh, our sites got hacked because we had an old version of WordPress that we'd forgotten about, an old instance we weren't using anymore that hadn't been updated and, and had a lot of bugs in it and an attacker found it and was able to inject code uh, into our systems. Now, fortunately, our systems are set up in such a way that it didn't impact us, but this can happen to anybody, and it's one of the problems with running uh, your own blogging software. When you use Squarespace.com, you're getting two things. You're getting hosting, but you're also getting software. And the nice thing about that is the software is always kept up to date. You're always using the latest version. In fact, Squarespace 6 is there. It's been in a lot of testing for the last six months. It's going to be out, I think, pretty soon. They've been, they've been banging on this frame for a while. And that's the beauty of it. When it comes out, it'll be ready to go. It'll be fully tested, and any patches, any fixes, any updates, you get them automatically. In fact, you'll get version 6 automatically. I want you to try Squarespace right now. Here's all you have to do. Go to squarespace.com. You'll see that big green button that says Try It Free. Click that. You can create your own site in seconds. All you need is a login, a name for the site. I did one for my, uh, my new ham call signs, W6TWT, then the password, and then the email address, and you're designing a site. You have two weeks to play with it, and all the Squarespace features, including their iPhone and iPad software that makes it easy to post and update, moderate comments, delete spam, if you ever get any, because Squarespace does a lot of that automatically, and statistics, too. You'll love the fact that you can import from all the standard APIs, so if you have an existing site, it's easy to get it in and out. True to Google's data liberation front, 
nothing is trapped at Squarespace. They've had this longer than Google has. You can always export your data. And when it imports and exports, all the links go with it, all the images, all the SEO is preserved. They really do a nice job. Great photo galleries, forms, data collection, and a whole lot more, and including these great social widgets, which make it so easy to embed Flickr or Twitter onto your account with point-and-click. Everything's point-and-click. If you know CSS or JavaScript, you can use it, but you don't have to to make a great-looking, unique site. Try Squarespace today. Squarespace.com. Click that green button. If you decide to buy, Squarespace is very affordable, uh, pricing as low as $10 a month, but... Uh, if you use the the uh, offer code security now seven when you buy, you'll get an additional ten percent off your new account for the next six months. Squarespace.com. Try it for two weeks, then if you decide to buy, use security now seven, all one word, the number seven, and you will get ten uh, percent off for the first six months of your site. Squarespace, the secret behind exceptional websites. Try it today. All right, Steve Gibson. I have my notes in front of me. Let's uh, start with our security uh, updates, shall we? Well, yeah. Um, anyone who is using iOS may have seen that a couple of days ago, Apple changed the the most recent update we got just a week ago. We talked about 4.3.4, and very quickly on its tail, they updated us to 4.3.5. Um, there's a different update. I think it's they're running different version numbers on the CDMA version with Verizon, but all the AT&T and traditional iOSs and iPads are are have just been brought up to 4.3.5. The nature of the problem is really interesting. From Apple's site, they said under impact, they said an attacker with a privileged network position may capture or modify data in sessions protected by SSL or TLS. So it's like, whoa, okay, that, you know, privileged network position, we know that that's code for man-in-the-middle style attack, meaning that that there was some way to intercept SSL sessions. So I, I thought, okay, well, you know, what's going on? Their description says, still doesn't really tell us. They uh, Apple said a certificate change validation issue existed in the handling of X.509 certificates. X.509 is just a, a standard um, uh, a standard formatting for, for SSL certificates that's uh, industry-wide. They said an attacker with a privileged network position may capture or modify data in sessions protected by SSL TLS, basically repeating themselves, other attacks involving X.509 certificates validate, certificate validation may also be possible. This issue is addressed through improved validation of X.509 certificate change. Well, yeah, improved. Listen to the details. From the people who discovered the problem, an outfit called Recurity, R-E-C-U-R-I-T-Y. The Recurity Lab blog wrote uh, just yesterday on July 26th. Recurity Labs recently conducted a project for the German Federal Office for Information Security, uh, whose acronym is BSI, which, amongst others, also concerned the iOS platform. During the analysis, a severe vulnerability, and when they're not kidding, a severe vulnerability in the iOS X.509 implementation was identified. When validating certificate chains, iOS fails to properly check 
the X.509 version 3 extensions of the certificates in the chain. In particular, the basic constraints section of the supplied certificates are not verified by iOS. In the basic constraints section, the issuer of a certificate encodes whether or not that issued certificate is a CA certificate, i.e., whether or not it may be used to sign other certificates. Not checking the CA bit of a certificate basically means that every end entity certificate can be used to sign further certificates. To provide an example, when a CA issues a certificate to a website, the CA will usually set the CA bit of this certificate to false. Assume the attacker has such a certificate issued by a trusted CA to attacker.com. The attacker can now use their private key to sign another certificate which may contain arbitrary data. This could, for instance, be a certificate for bank.com or uh, that is to say anything.com or even worse. It could be a wildcard certificate containing multiple common names such as star.star, star.star.star, and so forth. iOS has been failing to check whether the attacker's certificate was actually allowed to sign subsequent certificates and considers the so-created universal certificate as valid. The attacker could now use this certificate to intercept all SSL TLS traffic originating from an iOS device. However, SSL TLS is not the only use for X.509. Every application that makes use of the iOS crypto framework to validate certificate chains is vulnerable. Okay, so what's very cool here is that for any of our listeners who haven't already updated themselves, there's something cool they can do. If you go to https colon slash slash issl.recurity, R-E-C-U-R-I-T-Y dot com, these guys have set up a test. If you use the Safari browser on any iOS device and you don't get a notification of there being a problem, then you've got this problem. Wow. I tried it on my own iPads this morning, and it's neat. You, well, I mean, <laughs> it demonstrates the problem. You get taken to a page that says, if you didn't just see a security pop-up, you're vulnerable to this. Now, this, so this, any, this red screen with the invalid server certificate, that's what I'm supposed to see. Correct. That and for means, example, and I'm doing this on a on a desktop, which is why I see it. It's not on iOS right. device. And for example, I, I tried it under Firefox five, and I immediately got there. This connect Firefox's this connection is untrusted pop up, and that's what you want. Fi- that that yes, that's what you want to see. And then then the pop up said you have asked Firefox to connect securely to issl.recurity.com, but we can't confirm that your connection is secure. Okay, now the reason is that the certificate chain is not signed by a valid certificate authority because Firefox is correctly processing the the version 3 extensions of the certificate which iOS until just there I mean just now this apparently has been a problem forever. 
So Apple is just it was just now found and it has just now been fixed. So for example, anybody who's got an iOS version not 4.3.5 who didn't just update in the last day or two will be able to go with their version of Safari to issl.recurity.com and see a page with no problems. And what that has done is essentially it means that bad guys can sign their own certificates and produce certificates for any websites they want to. So this is a really bad problem, which has just now been fixed and has apparently been been a problem since you know the first iPhone happened. Um, so uh, now, if you got the new iOS update, you shouldn't see that error. And I did. I updated right. that the the iPad where I had no problem going to that page. When I tried it again, I just hit refresh on Safari. After updating, I got a pop up which warned me that iOS was unable to validate the security of this site. And I, I could look for more details, or I could say ignore it, or 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 you know cancel going there. So you ought to absolutely see that there's a problem with this when you go to issl.recurity.com after the patch. But if you have the chance to, to check it out before the patch, it's kind of fun to see that, whoops, uh, this, this, this slipped through. And certainly doesn't anywhere else because everything else is checking those, that flag saying uh, this certificate cannot be used to sign others, and Apple's not checking that. Arcanic has a good point in the chat room. He says you can only update a 3GS or later. So if you have an older iPhone, uh, mm. this bug is going to persist. Wow. That, that is a problem. I wonder if Apple will fix that because, you know, I, that, this is bad. Yeah, I mean, I bet they don't. <laughs> I really, yeah. honestly, they want you to buy a new phone. Well, while we're in Macs, um, the... Uh, a new tool has been created, and I love this little news blurb because this is something we've talked about, again, sort of in a theoretical vein, and it's, it's happened in the real world, as so many of the things that we talk about end up uh, having happen. This is a, an expensive tool from a company called Passware. By expensive, I mean $995. Um, and, well, they're getting that much money. The hackers... Uh, can do the same thing for free. So the uh, th th this was an article, I think it was in Wired.com, who said that um, it, it said a new tool can steal your Mac's passwords in minutes, even if the machine is locked, sleeping, or encrypted. And it turns out this is also true for PCs for a reason we'll see in a second. They said Passware can control your computer into revealing all its secrets, including login passwords and the contents of its keychain app in just minutes. All someone needs to do is plug in the USB stick with the app in another machine, tap through a few menus, plug a, and here it is, FireWire cable into the target Mac or PC and catch the magic. Yeah. And it doesn't matter whether you have encrypted your data using Apple's File Vault app or another tool such as TrueCrypt. The vulnerability still exists. Now, the moment I saw this, I thought, well, yeah, we've talked about this. Right. You have F to store these unencrypted passwords in, in memory so you can use them. But more importantly, FireWire is the vulnerability, remember? Ah. Because FireWire is a DMA interface. Ah, uh, we did if, talk about this like, before. Yes. So a FireWire device has direct memory access, which is what DMA stands for, 
into a system's memory. It's essentially, it's a master on the bus and it's able to simply read and write. Now there, we, as I'm sure that I remember, although I didn't just refresh my memory for the story, there is a means by which the FireWire interface can be restricted in the ranges of memory that any IO devices have access to, um, but that's apparently still not being done. So, and so as you said, Leo, when a machine is in use, when it's even when it's sleeping or suspended, the the, um, the keys necessary for the machine to use itself have to be available in memory. They so this piece, of, so- this DJ piece of software... Said, Double DJ in our chat room says, well, couldn't they be hashed in memory? But I think you'd have to have them in the clear at some point, right? Correct. You could even... If you didn't store the version in the clear, you're, you're still storing the actual in-use code, right. which is there actually being transacted in memory. So there, there, we, we've seen code which is able to use the expanded version of the password um, in, order to, um, in order to reconstruct what, what the password is. So uh, it's, this is definitely a vulnerability. What, what I would do, certainly on the PC, I know it's possible to disable your FireWire interfaces. And if you're not someone who uses FireWire, absolutely arrange to, to, to disable it completely if you can because it's a big glaring hole i presume they're going to fix this i mean and, and the other the other point to be made is somebody has to have and we talked about this before with the the freezing the the memory thing somebody has to have access to your physical hardware and you got if somebody has access to your computer and the hard drive you got a whole passel of other problems anyway uh, right? i mean really true they, yes. they've got your stuff although you, you might assume that locking your machine or, or, or sleeping it or right, putting it in standby would right. protect you. And in this case, it doesn't because right. it does have access even in those modes. Right. Um, okay. So a bunch of people tweeted me about this Apple battery pack hack. Um, what's interesting is that it was <laughs> discovered. <laughs> yeah, it's a wacky story. <laughs> yeah. um, it's by a really good guy or a true hacker who's not a hack. Um, Charlie Miller, we've spoken of before because he's a he's a repeat winner of the Pwn to Own right. uh, annual hacking comp competitions. They, they call uh, him Safari knows, Charlie because he always wins by hacking Safari. Yep, so that's his nickname. Yep. Um, so he will be revealing all the details and showing this at the forthcoming Black Hat conference on August fourth. What he what he discovered was he was poking around. In you know the Mac as always, and he he something caused him to do some research into the the Apple firmware management for their battery. Some years ago, Apple updated the firmware on their battery controller for the MacBook Pro. Charlie went back, found a patch, reverse engineered the patch code which is able somehow to talk to and unlock the controller over which there's not much documentation. And he discovered that every Mac ever made has the same password used (laughs) to unlock the microcontroller, which controls the uh, lithium polymer um, prismatic battery used in 
all MacBook Pros. Now, what does unlocking a battery mean? I don't even understand okay. what that means. So, well, it's it's a funny coincidence because I'm super current on this because I've been researching battery management uh, for this uh, portable device that I'm in the process of, of getting ready the to build. Dog the dog uh, annoyer. Exactly. The crow destroyer. We, yeah, it turns out that in order to generate 150 watts of, of continuous RMS power, which is what this thing will be able to do. I mean, this is, you know, overkill in every sense of the word. Um, my, this little portable device needs to generate um, 110 volts peak to peak at 12 amps uh, from a battery system. So I need to have, because I'm using what's called a full wave bridge uh, amplifier for this 4-ohm super tweeter, I need to have 55 volts of DC. You get that by putting 15 cells of lithium <laughs> polymer uh, batteries in a chain. Uh, each cell Couldn't is- you just use a car battery? Wouldn't that be more no. efficient? No, and in fact, the way audio amplifiers in in cars in autos work, they 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 only have access to twelve volts. Right. Of course, they have access to lots of amperage. So, what they're in order to drive in in their case, probably eight ohm subwoofers and eight ohm speakers. They twelve volts will not do the job. You can't you can't uh, just switch twelve volts into eight ohms and get the kind of power which you know we know deafens. Uh, you know, teenagers' eardrums yeah. who are driving around in these cars. So what they have is they have a switching power upverter, which takes the 12 volts and about 100 kilohertz. They they switch it back and forth. They use a, a 100 kilohertz because that allows them to use a much smaller core on a on a power transformer to step up the 12 volts up to something like 50 volts. Then they rectify it, filter it, and then amplify that. So in my case, I don't need to do that because, you know, I can just use three 18.5 battery packs. It turns out that the RC model um, industry has a great need for high power DC to in order for, for their, their high end, high performance, you know, helicopters and right. planes. And, and they cars. need to be light. You need a lot, of, a lot of juice in a small, lightweight package. Exactly. Right. So I use three five-cell packs, giving me a total of fifteen cells. So, um, but I want. I thought it'd be fun to learn about you know managing these batteries. Well, it turns out that all of our laptops do that. And if anyone's ever looked at the at the battery connectors we now have on all of our laptops, you'll notice that it doesn't have just like a big plus and a minus connection. No, no, no. It's yeah. got a comb. It's got a right. series of of, of connections. What those are are those are taps into into every cell of the battery, and the word battery itself means you know a bunch connected together. It's a battery of cells that our laptop is using because because the laptops need also more voltage and and more current. So so our laptops essentially feed out of every of every connection between the cells and the battery they they feed that out in the laptop then is a battery management system which 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 deals with charging and discharging the batteries the reason you need to look at each cell is that cells don't all have just coming from the factory they don't all have exactly the same power handling 
And so there, there will be one or two cells that will be slight, just characteristically weaker than the others. Hmm. So o- over cycling these up and down and up and down and up and down, just through daily use, one, of, uh, one or more of the cells will end up with a lower voltage across it than, than um, alternative cells in the pack. So it ends, and so it's called cell desynchronization, and this ends up shortening the total lifetime of of the of the battery pack. So what these manage, what these ba- these battery management systems do is they look at the individual charge across each cell, and they will bleed the cells that have a higher charge a little extra down to match the cell with the lowest char- charge. Or during charging, they will shunt some of the charging current around the higher charge cells, again, in order to sort of automatically rebalance the, the charge in each cell of the pack. So there's, a, there's much more going on here than, than typical users are aware. And there are, there, there's even freeware that is available that, that for um, matching controllers, you're able to look inside this and look at the voltage of each cell in your pack, see how many cycles it's had, uh, the, the, the current charge state, and all this other information. So what Charlie learned was that by reprogram deliberately and maliciously reprogramming the firmware in his battery microcontroller, um, he was able to brick a number of batteries. He basically killed six batteries, um, and and these are one hundred and thirty dollar you know MacBook Pro batteries. One of the one of the things that um, every battery has is a little is a management chip which prevents the battery from ever being used if it drops below about two volts, um, and ever allowing a charge of more than four point two volts. So. Um, if anyone's ever had like, the experience of a um, a, a lithium-ion battery appearing to just com- be completely dead, what actually happened was that one or more cells in the battery dropped below two volts, and at that point, it is it is essentially taken offline, and you are never able to use the pack again. So what Charlie was able to do was to pre- was to prevent the technology that limits the discharge to 3 volts, allowing it to go lower and pass under that 2-volt threshold, um, and then you are never able to recover from that. So um, at this point, um, nothing has been done that we know of maliciously, but everyone knows that this is now possible, and uh, it's going to cause some serious problems if Apple doesn't get on the stick here and randomize the password on all of their machines to prevent people from being able to go into the microcode. The problem is, once they do that, they will never be able to patch the microcode of their own microcontrollers again. What Apple can patch, bad guys can too. Right. So this is an interesting little hack. Yeah. Can they make it blow up? Can I, I mean, could it be explosive as a result? Um, he has posited that it's possible, although he's never made it happen. I, I'm suspicious of that. I can see how you could brick them by, bring, by allowing them to over-discharge. Right. But there should be per-cell overcharge protection. And, in fact, it's in battery packs that don't have that that we uh. have seen fire problems. So you couldn't override it in the firmware. 
I don't think so. No, I, that wouldn't th- make because, sense. Because there, there's firmware management that's outside the pack that is that lives on the motherboard, but then inside the pack itself, there are per cell chips which prevent individual cells from ever being overcharged they will they will they will just refuse to allow that that cell to to take an overcharge and they also monitor the cell temperature and will cut off if if the cell gets overly hot so i'm i'm almost sure you cannot make anything explode but once you drive a cell down below two volts it's over Hmm. that entire uh pack is you know is a is an expensive Hundred and thirty dollar paperweight, and that you can do by by misprogramming the firmware. And again, you'd have to have physical access. Oh, maybe not. No, no. You this could do this is, in this software. Is, so yes, this is a one hundred percent software glitch. So right. so he he did notify Apple several weeks ago that he that he of what he found and that he would be talking about this on August fourth. You know, here we are toward the end of July, and everyone knows about it now. Right. So you can imagine there are some. Some bad guys rubbing their hands together, thinking this would be a fun, a fun piece of malware to deliver when people surf to malicious websites. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Under miscellany, um, I upgraded to version five of Firefox, and I'm not sure whether it was doing that or whether it was a new version of Certificate Patrol. But my Certificate Patrol, which I love and have talked about often, suddenly got very noisy. Essentially, it seemed to have forgotten all the sites I had ever been to, and it was popping up a dialogue like all the time. Anytime I established an SSL connection that I hadn't um, established recently, I got a pop-up. Well, that's old behavior. The new behavior is also it was graying out the OK button, not allowing me to click it to dismiss the pop-up and allow the page to display, which was really annoying. You know, they're, they're, you know they've added a new feature, which I don't need, and I don't know why it's there because it's just useless. So the good news is, and I wanted to share this with any other listeners who have, have, who have had similar problems, but even if you don't upgrade to 2.0.8, there it is. Certificate Patrol is customizable in a way that I never bothered to before, but now I wish I had, and I have now. So if you go under Firefox's Tools menu and then choose Add-ons, and then from the Add-ons page choose Extensions, and then and then under Certificate Patrol, they they've got an Options dialog that pops up a dialog that now has four options. The first one that was enabled by default says. Um, newly accepted certificates are always shown in a pop-up by default. I have now turned that off vehemently um, because I really don't care as, as new certificates are being shown. What I care about is any changes to those that's the that that that's this the significant value that certificate patrol offers well that's the second check mark that says all certificate changes even harmless ones are always shown in a pop up by default and so i left that on which i think is a good thing and then there's also show already except it's wildcard certificates again when they match in a new host name well, I was glad to see that, that there was an option for that. I turned that off because Google, for example, uses a star.google.com. And I was getting gmail.google.com, uh, secure.google.com, 
googleplus.google.com and like all these star.google.com certificates. And it's like, well, that was just boring. So I'm happy to turn that off. And then I turned on, which wasn't the default, and users can choose to or not. The last option is store certificates even when in private browsing mode. Well, I'm not a big user of private browsing mode due to the nature of my environment here. But if I am in private browsing mode, I, I think I'd like to have certificates stored. The concern is that this might be a bit of a privacy breach because if someone looked at the, at the stored certificates, they would know where you had been even if you were in private browsing mode. So you might want to leave that off just so that private browsing stays absolutely private. Uh, in my case, I don't really use private browsing mode, but I, I would like to have it store those uh, even when I am in private browsing mode. So that's what I set. So that's just a tip for people using Certificate Patrol. Mine has just gone completely quiet now, and I'm much happier with it. I know that it will let me know if something wacky happens, and that's really why I have it in the first place. Yeah, you, I don't need, to mention, you don't need to know about harmless certificate changes. <laughs> Thanks for letting me know, but I'll pass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it just you know, for for I know that a lot of, a lot of listeners will just find it interesting to know that a certificate has has been changed. You know, it's like expired, and, and I think Twitter has had a lot of recent changes because I I got some tweets from people saying, "Hey, Steve, have you noticed that Certificate Patrol is telling you about those?" And it's like, yeah, yeah, well, I, I saw somebody in the chat room saying that uh, today. Yeah, right. Um, I am wrapping up my reading of Damon. I wanted just to uh, give another shout out to uh, it. Many of our listeners have started, and I've had a flood of positive feedback uh, from yeah. the recommendation. And I will be shortly on to Freedom, the uh, sequel to it. Freedom which- TM. Remember the TM yep. in the word. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> it's important because there's a lot of books named Freedom, including a big bestseller this year called Freedom. Uh, by Jonathan Franzen. So it's Freedom TM. Okay. And there is a, uh, someone asked me where to find it, and there is a, a Damon website. Oh, yeah. Um, so, uh, and so, so, so you can just put in like Damon the book into Google, and it will take you to uh, the, the Damon website where you can find this and li- links to the Amazon for downloading it for Kindle and so forth. Daniel Suarez is the author. That will yep. help you find it too. He's, he's great. We're going to have him on the show soon because his new book is uh, due out soon. But he's just done such a great job. A third book? Yeah. Oh, cool. He's, he was, he's been working on it for over a year now. Cool. Yeah, so it should be um, out soon. So- Someone tweeted me when I was talking about uh, coming back to this uh, the the uh, the animal annoyer product that I don't or project <laughs> that I don't have a good name That's for a yet. Good euphemism. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, someone tweeted me a, a recommended schematic capture and PC board fabricator, and I just can't find it back in my uh, Twitter feed. So I wanted to give a, a shout out to anyone who has a recommendation. That person, again, if you could tweet it to me again, I'd appreciate it. And I, I'll make sure I don't lose it this time. And I did have a fun and, uh, you know, always different uh, spin ride story to share from uh, Mike DeLuccia, uh, who wrote spin ride story, happy but confused. He said, Steve, I'm a Security Now listener and registered SpinRun owner of many years, though I just had my first opportunity, in quotes, to use it. The experience left me happy but confused. Let me explain. The other night we had a lightning storm, and though my system was turned off and unplugged, I believe a very close lightning strike may have caused the problem. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. 
Having it turned when off I, does nothing. Unplugged yeah, well, is not good. Exactly. And and if he was like, you know, still connected to his Ethernet, then right. uh, that's the way in. Right. He said, when I booted my system, it booted okay, but immediately started acting strangely. Responses to my commands caused it to slow to a crawl. I'd launch a program, and it would literally take a minute or so to respond, all the while showing the busy circle thingy. I re- I, he says, I rebooted, same thing. So I booted Spinrite, ran it at level two. It ran for about an hour and stopped displaying a red division overflow error dialog box. Now, that's, that's actually Spinrite monitoring its own math um, in order to see and catch if there's a problem. So he said the dialog displayed a bunch of hex info, like error occurred at BO4EAX, blah, 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 and asked me to write down all this data and reboot Spinrite. It also said, I believe, that Spinrite would ask for this data to aid in its repair process. And actually, that's not the case. It, what it said was that, you, it, that if you... If the problem persisted, that you could use that to to you know send that to GRC support, and we'd be able to you know figure out what happened and and fix it if it was a problem at our end. Anyway, he says I rebooted, but could never see anything different than the normal spin write process. I thought it was going to ask me for the data I copied. Confused, I restarted level two, figuring I get the same error and reread the directions. To my amazement. I never got that error message. Instead, Spinrite stopped about 14% through and began analyzing a certain portion of the disk. It stayed there for over two hours until I went to bed with it happily analyzing away. Hmm. I awoke this morning to a green dialog box stating that Spinrite had completed all of its work. And the best news is that all is well with my system now. As I wrote... Happy but confused. What happened? Did I miss something in the red error message that asked me to save and re-enter data when asked to do so? I was never asked. Anyhow, happy, I thought I'd share the story. Thank you for all you do for the community. Peace, Mike DeLuccia. That's great. So, hey, Steve, we're going to get to the, the meat of the matter, the anatomy of a security mistake in just a second. Oh, but I want to talk yes. a little bit about Netflix.com, if you don't mind. Uh, real quickly, if you are now, Steve's a member. We finally got Steve to sign up, uh, and he watches on his iPad. And this is this is the thing I, I think that's really interesting about Netflix. You know about the DVD by mail, but let me tell you about the streaming thing. For seven dollars ninety nine cents a month, unlimited streaming, and it's to an iPhone, an iPad, many I think twenty four different Android devices. Your PC and Mac, of course, using Silverlight. It also works on PlayStation 3s, Xbox 360s, and Wii's, so you can put it on your big screen TV that way. I use a Roku. A lot of TVs these days have Netflix. It's kind of the gold standard. If you want an Internet-connected device, it's got to have Netflix on it. And Netflix streaming is such a great deal. I mean, thousands of movies that you can watch instantly on any of these devices. It's so much fun to browse through them and... And look, I just, I, you know, I, I have the discs, but I hardly ever do them anymore because when I get in over here to the Watch Instantly tab and start scrolling through it, the TV shows, the movies, I, I, it's, there's always something I want to watch. It's like there's always something on, and I think that's what I really like about it. I've started going through series like the original series of Star Trek one by one, Battlestar Galactica, I'm re-watching that, uh, shows I never saw before. Including some British series that I, I like, Doc Martin that I never even heard of. 
are all on here, and it's it's just great. I just I, I really love it. You can try it free right now if you go to netflix.com slash twit. If you're already a Netflix member, can I ask you for a favor? Tell your friends, tell your family, uh, people who don't maybe know about Netflix and, and particularly don't know about the streaming. Uh, tell them about this. Tell them netflix.com slash twit so we get a little credit for it. Uh, and if they sign up, uh, you could, in fact, it's a great gift. Give them a gift certificate. Uh, that's what I do with my mom. Um, $7.99 a month is the best deal in entertainment out there right now. Give it a try. Netflix.com slash twit. We thank them for their support of security now. All right, Steve. Okay. Let's talk about it. The anatomy of a security mistake. Okay. So um, I want to give uh, Wallid credit. He's at W-A-L-I-D. It looks like Wallid uh, Damini uh tweeted um, some time ago, a few weeks ago. He said, this is a month old, but I ran into it only today. A hole in Crypt Blowfish. And he gave me a link to an article. So, this is a, a, this is a password hashing library where Blowfish encryption, which is a well-known, standardized um, encryption library, uh, is being used to hash passwords in, uh, in uh, PHP, some popular Linux distros, uh, OpenWall Linux, that, that's uh, OWL, uh, SUSE, ASP Linux, Alt Linux, and ANNVIX, which all use this Crypt Blowfish for hashing, hashing their password databases. Um, and this was discovered by someone using uh, John the Ripper password cracking program because he wasn't getting the results that he expected from his code and by drilling down into the system. And that's an advantage of open source. Um, Even though this problem did exist for 13 years, since 1997 or 98, um, an advantage of it is that he was able, you know, he had access to the source, so he was able to figure out what the problem was. So I love this because I can, in the course of this podcast, in an audio only channel i can explain this and it's just it's a toe curlingly cool mistake okay so um we need to first understand about how numbers are represented by computers so we need a little bit of of a foundation paving in some fundamental technology of binary uh, numbering and computers. And this is relevant not just to this mistake, but to everything. This is the way computers work. We know that computers store numbers in binary. And, we, you know, for example, zero, the, the number zero is a, is however long the word is. It might be an 8-bit byte. It might be a 2-byte um, 16-bit value or, for example, a 4-byte 32-bit value. The, the value zero is just is universally agreed. It's just all the bits are set to zero. If we want to store a one, we increment. We we turn. We set the first bit to one. To do a two, we set the second bit on and the first bit off. And to do a three, the first bit and the second bit are both set on, and so on in sort of binary counting mode. In the same way, another way to think about this is. Everyone's familiar with decimal, where the units, like, like, like the first position is the units position that can have a value of 0 through 9. Then the next position 
um, is our is, is is the tens position that can have a value of zero through nine, and the next position is the hundreds position. So there, each digit in decimal has has ten times the value. Like the value weight of the prior one in binary, since we only have two values, each position has two times the value of the prior one. So one, two, four, eight, sixteen, thirty-two, sixty-four, one twenty-eight, two fifty-six, five twelve, ten twenty-four, two hundred four eight, and so forth. Um, numbers which you know low-level geeks learn very early in their programming career. So the question is, um, given that binary for example say we had an 8-bit byte we, if if all bits off is zero then if we have an an unsigned value all bits on we've often talked about is 255 because that's 128 which is the 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 amount represented by the the 8th bit in the byte plus so it's 128 plus 64 plus 32 plus 16 plus 8 plus 4 plus 2 plus 1, which is the sum of all those values, gives us 256 as the maximum unsigned value. But what about if we want to store a signed value, meaning that could have negative values? If we... If we start with zero and go upwards towards in the positive direction, we know that we essentially counting in binary, we have, we have the binary one, then two, then three, then four, and then five and six and so forth. If we subtract one from zero, what happens is with binary subtraction, we go to all ones. So whereas that all ones note that that all ones value if the word were unsigned um, is equal to 255 if we treat this byte as a signed value then negative one is all ones and then all ones except the first bit being on if, if the first bit's off that's negative two then all ones except the second bit being off and the first bit on is negative three and negative four is all ones but the first two bits off and so on. So you sort of you, you subtract backwards from from all ones in order to get negative values. And and the same thing applies if the, if we had if we had two bytes, um, then that then that would function or 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 three bytes or four bytes or eight or however many. Um, and this is called two's complement arithmetic there's a there's a simple way of of essentially negating a value um, with this kind of representation which is you you invert the number you invert all the bits and add one so for example say that we had zero the value zero if we invert them all that turns all the bits to ones and if we add one to that that overflows in binary, bringing it back to zero, which means that, you know, zero and negative zero are the same value, which makes sense. That's what you'd expect. If we had a one and we wanted to make it a negative one, well, so we had, if we had a one in the register, which would be the, the lowest bit is one and everything else is zero, we invert all the bits. So now they're all ones except the first one, which is zero, 
and add one, making them all ones. And as we know, that's the value for negative one if we have a signed representation. So, okay, so there's our little tutorial on signed on the signed representation of binary values in computers. This, and this bites is, people all the time, by the way. I'm sorry? Signed versus unsigned. It's always biting people. Yes. Well, it You see these bugs this a lot. Guy. It, it, it bit this guy. Um, so, so with that understanding, the, we, ha- we have a hashing algorithm which takes in input characters. And, you know, as we know, characters in, for example, ASCII are a byte size. And that is to say eight bits. But the encryption system works in 32-bit chunks so we need to we, we need an algorithm which could take in 8-bit characters one at a time and essentially sort of stack them up into a 32-bit value so it would take four 8-bit characters and and sort of fill a 32-bit register and and then do something else with it. So it, so it would accept them sequentially, and and fill this register. So in terms of the algorithm that's used, um, and this is what's in the source code for this system. Um, the the this thirty two bit register is set to zero at the beginning of one of one of these four byte. Um, shifting loops so it's set to all zeros then it's whatever happens to be there is shifted to the left by eight bits meaning that everything in the first in the lowest byte is moved over to the next byte everything in the second byte is moved over to the third anything in the third byte is moved over to the fourth and nothing in the fourth byte ever falls off the end which would otherwise happen because this is only done four times, just enough for the for the, for the the value going in to move, like the first value that goes in to move all the way over to the fourth byte, and so each time this is done, the the whatever is in the in this thirty two bit uh, register where we're assembling these characters, whatever's there is moved over by a byte. And then this new character is ORed in. Now, if we know from talking about logic, the way logic works, if you, if you have a register which is all zeros and you OR something into it, what you just get is the result will be what you ORed in because um, zero ORed with anything is whatever you ORed. So, so the act of shifting this 32-bit register eight bits to the left always results in, in the lower eight bits being zeroed because that's the way the shift operation functions. And then we OR this new character in, which essentially puts it in to the lowest byte of this 32-bit register. And that's done four times 
in order to accept four characters, four of these bite-sized characters, one at a time, and we end up with a 32-bit value. And so looking at the code, you can see that that's what this does. And I mean, it looks just fine, except that the, the character was defined just as a, 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 a care, C-H-A-R, in the C language that this was written in. And a care is a signed value by default in C. I don't know why that's the default because it doesn't make any sense for care to have a signed value. But uh, typical values in C are signed unless you override them by declaring them as an unsigned care or an unsigned um, uh, short integer depending upon um, the, the language convention. So – so this care value by default is a signed value. Well, what C, the language C um, observes when the programmer is oring this character value into a 32-bit value, it sees that the sizes are different. You're trying to or an 8-bit value with a 32-bit quantity and and we know that's what the programmer wants to do but the compiler says wait a minute we need to we need to sort of pad out that third that eight bit value to 32 bits in order to or in order to or it in except that because it is a signed value the compiler does something called sign extension and what this what sign extension does is it duplicates the that the, the the highest bit in the value? You know, remember that that last bit is a is a is set to a one. As soon as that value goes negative, um, we end up with like one 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 all the way out. So that the the highest bit in a binary quantity is considered to be the sign bit. If it's set, that means that the rest of the bits determine the the amplitude essentially with that high bit determining the sign, positive or negative. So the compiler sees that the programmer is oring an 8-bit signed value into a 32-bit register, and wanting to do the right thing, it sign extends, which means if the 8-bit value had its high bit set, all the other bits gets set to 1, and then that 32-bit quantity is ORed into this register. Well, ORing 1s into the register sets all the bits to 1, which means since this is being shifted over three times, as soon as you attempt to merge a character that is negative... That is, whose sign bit is set, all the prior characters, that is, up to three previous characters that may have been ORed in and shifted previously, are wiped out. All of their bits are set to one because the, this character we're ORing in had its high bit set. The C compiler said, oh, well, we're ORing in a signed value 
So we need to we need to preserve the sign of this eight bit byte when we convert it into a thirty two bit value. Doing that sets all of the other twenty four bits to ones. Then that thirty two bit composite is ored in to the register, setting all of those twenty of its twenty four bits to ones. Essentially, overwriting over oring whatever was there before. So the consequence of this tiny mistake where the compiler did technically what it was told to do, but not what the author certainly intended because they never intended for the sign extension to be applied and wipe out the three previous things that had been oared in and shifted over is that only every fourth character in the user's password is significant. So, (laughs) isn't that a cool mistake? (laughs) Wow. And, you know, it's the kind of thing, when you're reading the code, because you have to really intimately understand what a compiler does. So when you're reading the code, you may not realize that that's how the compiler is going to react. You see the programmer's intent instead of seeing what the result is going to be. Yes. After compilation, and so and and exactly, and that and I've, I've often talked about how seductive a process mm. it is mm-hmm. to read someone's code. You get into their mindset. You're looking at what they're doing, and you're going, "Okay, now we we set the temp right. to zero. Yeah, I get it. I get we shift it. I get temp what over doing. by yeah. eight. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you know, and then we or this in. Yeah, I mean, and so it it and it, and, and it takes it takes truly. Watching the code execute, and then it's like, oh my god! And then it's so obvious once you see it right. what the mistake is. And and I have to say, this is one of the benefits, one of the beauties of coding an assembler, because nothing is done that you don't explicitly ask for. There's no compiler and, in, in, in in between saying, oh, this is what you want to do. You're exactly, doing it. There's, there, there is There's a, no there, SEX there is, happening unless you say so. Correctly, exactly. There is a, there is a, a move, there's an MOVZX, which is move zero extend, right. and MOVSX, which is move sign extend. So those are the lowest level operations in the, you know, in assembly language that correspond to those exact instructions on the machine. Now, C was invoking move sign extend without it being obvious. Right. But when you're coding an assembler, you know, it's if explicit. I were writing this code, I'd say move zero extend right. because I, I would have to explicitly make that conversion from right. a byte to a 32-bit object. And knowing that I'm about to or that thing in, I would never sign extend. I just, you know, and so... Again, the compiler is, is sure it's easier to use, but a tiny mistake like this ends up being a problem. And in the updated source code, it now there, there's what's called a cast in front where it says in parentheses right. unsigned, unsigned care. Yep. So it's overriding the default care declaration of that byte saying, see compiler. Treat this as unsigned. Right. So that's all that had to be added to fix this bug, which caused, if you were typing in a password, 
you, you type in the first character, it would go into the first byte. You type in the second character, it, they would move the first one over and put the second one in. You type in the third one, it would move the first two over, put in the third one. Right. You type in the fourth one, it moved the first three over, put in the fourth one. But if that fourth character had its high bit set, it would wipe out the other four, or the, the previous three. So, so the bug was that passwords are hugely reduced in strength so that the first, er, only every fourth character is significant. So if you had an eight-character password, you only got a couple of letters in it. Yeah. Only, only two easy. characters matter. Yeah, yeah. very easy to crack. Um, so, wow. In, uh, in concluding, uh, in, in um, uh, the real-world consequences for this, from the pages where this was discussed, it's uh, the, the, the guys who... who went through this, said the safest solution for administrators with potentially bad password hashes, because what this means is that all of the passwords which have ever been hashed by this are weak. You know, they're all bad. You know, they were hashed only using every fourth character of what the user put in. So they said they wrote the safest solution for administrators with potentially bad password hashes which could include those running OpenWall Linux, SUSE, Alt Linux, and so forth, which, which use the Crypt Blowfish for hashing, hashing the password database, is to invalidate all passwords and have their users input new ones. That could prove to be a logistical nightmare, however, depending upon how easily and securely users can set new passwords without authenticating with their existing password. Requiring that users change their existing passwords after logging in is an alternative, but one that might give attackers a window in which to operate. It also leaves passwords unchanged for any users that do not log in. The risks of attackers using this flaw to log into a site are likely to be fairly small, but they do exist. If a site's login process is susceptible to brute force attacks, this bug makes it somewhat easier to right. do so, at least for specific password types. On the other hand, if the password database has been exposed and some passwords were not crackable, at least for attackers using cracking programs other than JTR, um, this information that has now been released would give them the means to crack those passwords much more easily. In the end analysis, it is an exploitable hole but not the kind to send administrators into panic mode. And you can't just fix the library because then the passwords stop working, right? Correct. And in fact, the patch now that brings us to 1.1, it actually has an if statement (laughs) where they, they formally say signed care. Um, and, and the, the if is controlled by, um, the, a, um, a new parameter to the to the blowfish set key function mm. which is called sign extension bug so you can call this asking for the sign extension bug in order to allow people to perform both the old style hash and the new style hash if you want to do this kind of sort of seamless migration right. from the old to the new right and then um, uh, they, they said it's somewhat amazing that this bug has existed for 13-plus years <laughs> in a fairly widely used library. 
Up until now, no one has tested it in this way, at least publicly, which should serve as something of a warning to those who are using well-established software, both free and proprietary. With free software, for example, Crypt Blowfish, has been placed into the public domain, which may be a bit legally murky, but is in keeping with free software ideals. There are more and easier opportunities to examine and test the code, but that's only effective if the testing is actually done. Yeah, that's what I was saying at the beginning. It's open source, Yep, which means people can look at it, but they got to look but, at it. And they got to look yep. at it with a certain kind of mindset. Actually, I, I would argue you can't look at it. You have to test it. And that's yeah, their you have thing. to look at a debugger is, and watch it happen. Yeah, well, I mean, you, I guess it, if you're looking for unsigned problems with unsigned care or signed cares, you could you might be smart enough now to look at code and say, "Oh, they're assuming that it's going to be treated as unsigned, but it won't be." Uh, and, and they said there are, without doubt, bugs still lurking yeah. in various security-oriented libraries that we depend upon every day. So testing those libraries, as well as code that is not being used for security purposes regularly and systematically can only help to find them. While it took more than a decade for this bug to come to light, it's worth pointing out that it certainly could have been observed by others in the interim. Attackers clearly do their own testing and are generally not inclined to release their results. Mm -hmm. That may not be the case here. But one should always recognize that public disclosure of a vulnerability is not necessarily tied to its discovery. It could have been discovered a long time ago. And that exactly. seems like the and kind of thing that um, a lint program or a program that automated program that goes through code might give you a, a warning saying, "Hey, you know this this is a this is an unsigned care, but you should be aware it might be treated as signed or something like that." That's a very good point. Now, I mean, you it's hard to see. Why you would ever want a signed extension oaring different size things? Right. That is to say, because that's always going to wipe out right. the other the the rest of the bits of the thing you're oaring it into. It will always do that. So you're right, Leo. A a you know a code analyzer that would say, well, you know, this is questionable. Did you mean this? Right. That would bring it to a programmer's attention. Then you go, oh crap, and you know, immediately say unsigned care. You know, casting that particular instance or just declaring it declaring it in in the original declaration as an unsigned care would also prevent the problem. So yeah. just a cool mistake that uh, I imagine our <laughs> listeners who who you know close their eyes and follow along with me uh, understand now? It's fascinating. It really is. I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, they, I, I was reading an article the other day about Google, and they have a thing called code review, where your peers review all code before it's uh, uh, put into production. And Google is, is reviewed by your peers. But these are the and, and they even talk about this in, in a code review situation. It's very frequently that as you do a code review, you kind of want the code to work, and you kind of you kind of you're kind of understanding the mindset of the programmer, and this is not what should be happening in a case like this. You should you should probably be running it through a debugger and watching it, uh, watching the the data change. Well, and you know if you think about it too, a malicious hacker wants to find problems. Right. They're they're inherently looking at every single line, saying, "Okay, can I exploit that? Can I exploit that one? Can I exploit that?" It's a you're right, Leo. It's a different mindset, and I don't know that somebody on your team right can uh, develop that same kind of truly adversarial mindset. Right. Yeah. 
You got to have the the hacker's brain. Steve, always a great pleasure to do this show, and this is a fun one. This is the kind of thing that I think people really uh, love the show for because it's an insight into how code is written, mistakes that are made, uh, and how hackers work uh, as well. Really great stuff. Thank and you it so really much. did happen. Yeah. Steve's got uh, GRC.com, the Gibson Research Corporation. That's where you can find uh, Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive and maintenance utility grc.com you can also find uh, this show and all the previous shows all 310 previous shows uh, including 16 kilobit versions for the bandwidth impaired transcripts um, and uh, all the show notes as well grc.com next week we're going to do a Q&A so that means Steve uh, people should go to grc.com slash feedback and leave their questions about this or any topic we talk about or anything that's on your mind grc.com slash feedback and when you get there by the way lots of free stuff Steve puts out like Wismo and Decombobulator, the password haystacks. Just browse around the site. There's a ton of good stuff at GRC. Thanks, Steve. It was so great seeing you on Sunday. Thanks for coming up for uh, the show. Glad to do it. Really appreciate it. Thanks for putting up with our new studio and the and the, the little bits and pieces we're getting uh, working. I think we're getting it down, though. I have to say, this show uh, next week will be in my studio, so we'll have to start all over again. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> debugging. <laughs> we got our own debugging to do. Steve Gibson, take care. We'll see you next week on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security Now.